Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series, History, we'll be looking at the big picture of God's rescue story from Genesis to Revelation. Today's speaker is Senior Minister Dee Dee Bacon. I'm struck by the reality that uh, I just love being here with you, and I just love this church. And uh, it hit me as I was looking at the participants, uh, the worship, the music, musicians on stage, I realized, you know what? This is, a, this is a picture of who we are. We are a multi-generational church. And there's a calling on us for everyone from whatever generation you may be to be part of this church family because each generation needs the other. And that's how God intended it to be as a family. Our seasoned saints... We need their wisdom. Our middle-aged saints, we need their middle-agedness. <laughs> Our younger saints, we need their energy. Our really young saints, we just need their innocence. I, I mean, we all need each other. And participating in a church together in a church family like this is just, it's just pretty cool and pretty awesome. So glad you're here. Glad you're with us this morning. So I have a little bit of a confession to make, and I'm I'm hoping it's a confession that resonates with you because it's something that I think that everybody struggles with. I I hate to mess up. I hate to make a mistake, and when I make a mistake, I particularly hate it when it affects someone else, when it hurts someone else, when 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 it brings about bad things on someone else. I just, oh, I just beat myself up. You know, I'm saying this, and I think of a time when my, my, young, my son, Christian, he's my third born, my, he, he was coughing as an infant, so we're in sick time, so this probably connects with a lot. He was, he was coughing, it was wintertime, he was coughing, and at that time I thought, well, the kid must have croup because, you know, we had two other kids, and that's what we did, and so this cough sounded like croup, and so I guess I said, well, let's just do what you do when, when a kid has croup. You bundle them out and you do what? You go outside, right? So they can, things calm down and they get the cold air. Well, that didn't work. In fact, it made it worse. It made it so bad that we had to take him to the hospital, and we took him to the hospital because we found out he had asthma. And the worst thing we could have done, I could have done, was take him outside to breathe that cold air in his current condition. I'm going to tell you that. Seeing my little, little boy in the back as we drove around, you know, that's what we did at first to try to get him to sleep, and he's like, <clears throat> and then uh, take him to the hospital and getting all the, oh, I felt like a dog. I felt like a dog. And I started this kind of thinking, you know, I, I should have known better. I should have not made assumptions. I should have taken him to the doctor earlier. I should have not done what I did. And so I get out that big old should thing, and I start the should conversation. And, and, and for a time, I, I beat myself up with that phrase, I should have, I should have, I should have. I have a friend who's a counselor, and he tells me that this this thing of should is something that's common to everybody. We do a lot of shoulding. And I've got to be careful how I say that, I know, right? <laughs> we do a lot of shoulding. 
But we are at the beginning of the year, and a lot of us are making New Year's resolutions, and what are we doing? We're, we're putting together a should list, right? Really, that's what it is. It's a should list. I should do this, and I should do that, and I have this goal that should bring me weight loss. I have this goal that should make me better as a person because I'm reading my Bible more, I'm being more nice, or whatever that resolution is. We make a mistake, and of course, we, we do the old should thing. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? We get upset with someone because they should have known, or they should not treat us this way. Or we should get better service because we are paying the waiter to serve our meal on time. The thing about should is that every time we bring up the should in our language or in our, in our thinking, in our operations, it's typically followed by some kind of negative feeling, whether it's guilt or irritation, about not what, getting what we believe we deserve to get or what we should have, right? I mean, guilt and should are partners, when you start on the, the should thinking, when you start beating yourself up with should, there's this negative feeling that goes with it. It's guilt feelings, and, and many times it goes along with this sense of guilt status. Oh, I should have done this, or I should have done that. Now, if you're like me, most human beings, when it comes to this kind of living, we, we usually respond in one of two ways. Most of us typically figure, well, we're going to deal with should by trying harder, right? Uh, I should have known. I, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be better. I'm going to actually make should bigger, and I'm going to be better. Carrying that burden for a while, and we can't seem to to make it better, so then the other alternative is that we say, forget about should. Forget about the standards that I'm trying to live by. Forget about whatever I'm feeling guilty about, whatever that source is. I'm going to reject it because it's old, it's, it's, it's archaic, it doesn't apply to my life, and I am just tired of feeling bad because of this sense of should. You know, the Bible has a, a word for this. It's more of a phrase, actually. It's called living under the law. Living under the law. See, the way should works is that should only works when we compare ourselves to some kind of outside standard or expectation, right? I mean, you can't should unless you have something that you're appealing to, right? You can't say, they should treat me this way unless you have this expectation or standard. Or you can't say, I should have done this unless you have this expectation and standard by which you're trying to operate by. Get we? Get me? And, and typically, this outside measurement is a set of rules and expectations that we can actually call law. Now, as we've been going through this series, if you remember, we're talking about history, and we're talking about the story of the Bible, and we're talking about how it flows. What we've discovered is that beginning with Genesis... God created human beings, and in that, we, 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 we're using the backbone of Romans. Paul says in creation, those who are non-Jews have law through being able to observe creation and have this thing called their conscience. So their should is typically something inside or something that we can observe and say, this is how God is and this is how we should live. Then he says, but last week I talked about, well, then we talked about Abraham. And Abraham tells us that God's pursuit is for a people. 
He doesn't want a holy place. He wants a holy people. And now we've transformed from the end of Genesis here, end of Genesis where Abraham has a kid and that kid has a kid and this guy called Joseph. Joseph uh, takes the family to a place called in Egypt and they grow up into from being a, just a, a couple of few tribes, few clans into a nation. And this people now, the people of God, comes a man named Moses who introduces what we call the law. In other words, we find out that while God wants a a people, he wants a holy people. And what defines this holy people is that they've received the very words of God, the law of God, of what it takes to be a holy people. They've received the ultimate details on how we should live for God. You with me? With me? We don't have to do too many mental gymnastics with that. Right, So we've got Genesis, and we come to Exodus, which is the next book on the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus. Exodus is the story of Moses giving the law of God to the people of Israel, the ultimate should list. And in doing that, what's he doing? He leads them out of Egypt to the place that he wants them to be. That's why it's called Exodus. They're exiting out of Egypt and going to the land of Canaan. And in that, they're becoming a people of God who have been given a listing of how they should live the law. And as you read through Genesis and then Exodus, and then you get to Leviticus and Numbers, Leviticus and Numbers are really a fuller explanation, a really in-depth, detailed explanation of how we should live by law. How we should live by law. But as you read the story, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, what you see, what you see is that the people can't do it. The people of Israel who received the very law of God, the very words of God who said, this is what it means to be a holy people on how you should live, they just can't do it. That very generation that comes out of Egypt they can't, they can't keep God's law. I mean, they see God on the mountain. They receive the Ten Commandments. They get all the details directly. And they cannot even keep it up. So they get punished because in the way should works is if you break the law, you suffer the penalty. And for them, the penalty was that they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years and never get into the land that they were promised because of their disobedience, because they couldn't keep up with should. So we come to what Paul has to say. And Paul points out, hey, this is what I'm telling you. You Jews, you people that have received the specific word of God onto how how you should live, on what it means to be a holy people. You guys haven't been able to keep the law. Therefore, you're in the same predicament as the pagans, the non-Christians, deserving of the punishment. And so then he kind of shifts his thinking and he said, okay, now that I've pointed that out, I'm sure some of you are saying, then why even have the law? What's the point? If the law is just some uh, big stick that God gives us so that we get beaten up and, and basically end up burning in hell, why does he even give it to us? What's the point? So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 3. Paul explains the point. It says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. In Didi's phrase, no one can be made right with God 
being shoulded. Should it? Is that a word? The way of should doesn't work because none of us, none of us, no matter we, whether we acknowledge the Bible or not, none of us can live up to the standard by which we try to live by because we can't make it on the way of should. And trying harder doesn't work and, and ignoring it doesn't work because it doesn't really deal with the problem. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Okay, there it is. Here's the point. The law makes us aware of the fact that the way of should is not a viable option for us to be made right with God. Huh. The law is a teacher. And the teacher says, you can't do it on your own. Now, why is that important? Well, that's important because if we remember back to the beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden, the enemy comes to, to Eve and says, hey, eat of the fruit. What's his temptation? Eat of the fruit so you can be like God. See, the temptation was to appeal to human beings' sense that they can figure out how to be like God, how they can be right with God on their own terms. They can should themselves into heaven. That's, been our, that's our problem all the time. We believe we can get into heaven by our own terms, following our own set of should, right? That's our problem. And when we come to grips with the reality of God's standard, God's law, what it shows us is that we can't do it. And the hope is, is that we can get to the point where we say, we cannot do this. The way of should isn't the way to go. I can't choose the option of trying harder, and I'm not going to choose the option of rejecting it because that's going to put me in a bad place. And God says, but there is a third option. There is another option that is open, and it's been open all along because it's been my plan from the beginning. It's called grace. And grace is the opposite of the way of should. Because grace works like this. There was one who lived as he should, Jesus, who died to pay the price, not for things that he deserved, but paid the price because he chose to be obedient to the Father and because he loves every one of us. And because he did that, his life was offered up as a substitute for those of us who didn't live as we should so that we may not get what we deserve, but instead get what God gives through Jesus. It's called grace. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? And the Bible says is that that grace is accessed not by should, it's accessed by believing. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, by grace through faith as we see at baptism, the occasion by which that which is promised to us is, is kind of a point in which we can say, well, this is where we receive that status change. Because when we accept God's gift of grace by faith, by believing... 
Then we have an identity change. That identity change is that we go from an enemy of God to a child of God. We go from being blind to being able to see. We're going from death to life. We go from one who, who is outside of the family of God, not right with God, to one who's brought inside the family of God. We go for an identity change. And that identity change then allows us now to live in a different way because God's Spirit comes to reside in our life and we don't live anymore should-filled, but we become people who are called to live grace-filled lives. And play with, stay with me here because I'm trying to get clever. Grace-filled lives, how does that sound? Is there, there's a closeness to that. Grace-filled life, it's grateful lives. How do we live for God if we've been made right by grace? We live for God gr- motivated by gratefulness, grace-filledness. We live now not because we should, but we live now because we love and we are appreciative of what God has said. And you look in the Bible, and that's how he describes it, Romans 12. Offer yourself daily as living what? Sacrifices. What does that mean? We think of that in a negative, but let's shift that a little bit in our thinking to think that's a positive term. That's saying, I live as a thank you to God. And Jesus said, if you love me, if you want to show appreciation for me, what are you going to do? You're going to obey my commandments. And what are my commandments? My commandments are simple. Love God and love people. Romans 6. Romans 6, when you were slaves to sin, he says, when you were living as should, in the should way, when you were slaves to sins, you were free from the control of righteousness. You were free from the control of the way of grace. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you were now ashamed of? What benefit did you reap from living in should, he says? Those things result in death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, have become slaves or children of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life for the wages, what you deserve of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What God offers us moves us from being outsiders to insiders in His family. What makes us insiders is not living by should, but by living by faith in grace. Now, remember I was telling you the story about the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And then comes the book called Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is Moses' last speech to the people. Uh, Moses was one of those that didn't get to go into the promised land because of his sin. Sad story. The leader of God's people, called to lead the people of God, gets to die on the outskirts of the promised land, and he, of course, goes to God, of course, which is the ultimate promised land, but he, he's left on the edge and he, he talks to this new generation because the old generation, the, the folks, the parents who left Egypt all die out in the, the desert after 40 years. And this is a young generation. And he's turning over leadership to his apprentice, this guy called Joshua. And Deuteronomy, what he does is that he re-explains. Deuteronomy basically means a second telling. He re-explains 
all what it means to be made right with God by the law. This is what God said on the mountain to me, guys. This is how you're to live as you go into the land. This is how you're to operate and how you're to be a holy people. He explains that to them. What it means to be holy, what it means to be on the inside. That's Deuteronomy. The next book after Deuteronomy is a book called Joshua. And you're like, oh, okay, it's named after Joshua because it illustrates the, the work that Joshua does primarily in moving into the land of Canaan and taking the land by conquest and settling the land as the 12 tribes here and there and blah, 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 right? That's all, all those logistics are involved. And you think, well, Joshua is really a story of how the people of Israel took the promised land, took the land of Canaan. But I would like to challenge you with an insight that the gentleman who was leading the tour that I just went on just a couple weeks ago to Israel said, and I agree with him. He said, you know, we need to think of Joshua differently. We need to think of Joshua as a response to Deuteronomy in answering the question, what does it really mean to be made right with God? What does it mean to be an insider when it comes to being the people of God? Let's see Joshua as a lesson for us as to whether the way of should is open or the way of grace is open. So Joshua is given leadership of the people. They cross over the Jordan. There's a miraculous spreading of the Jordan at that time. Uh, the Jordan apparently was in flood because I had just been to the Jordan. It's a small little river. I mean, you can just walk across. I mean, you can throw a stone and hit the Jordanian guard on the other side. I mean, no problem. But you would create an international incident if you did that. So I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> All right? So, but at that time, the Jordan was pretty, it was in flood stage. It was wide. So God split the Jordan. People of Israel walk from the mountain up to Moses says, see you later, and dies, and gives them Deuteronomy, and they walk across, and they enter in, and they're starting their plan to take on uh, the, the land of Canaan, to enter into the land promised to them. Their first obstacle is this, this, this city called Jericho. And we're told that Jericho uh, was fortified by a double wall, two walls around it. And so Joshua, being a shrewd military commander, says, let's scope out what's going on with, Jer with, with Jericho. Uh, I was there just a couple of weeks ago. And to be honest with you, the site is tiny. I mean, it's not very big. You're thinking this massive city. It's not very big. And, and I think that the reality is it's not the bigness of, of, of the city. The reality is, is the significance of its position. It was a fortified city right in the way that the people of Israel in their first battle had to take on. So it's double-walled, and we're told that he sends in a couple of spies. These spies get in there, and they meet a lady called Rahab. Rahab is a prostitute, a woman, woman of ill repute. And if you want to talk to me later, uh, Rahab, uh, the literal meaning of her name, is appropriate for a woman in this business, okay? So I won't go there because I'll get in trouble. Um, but anyway, Rahab meets these guys, and she recognizes that they're Israelites, and she helps them. We're told that she lives in a house between the double walls. Now, how come? Well, because she's an outsider, right? She's an outsider. She's an outsider to the people of Jericho, and she would be an outsider to the, to the Israelites, right? She's a woman, she's a pagan, and she's a prostitute. Not necessarily someone who would be standing up and measuring well against this law given in Deuteronomy. But Rahab meets these Israelite spies, and she chooses to help them. In fact, we're told she 
takes them in. She hides them when the authorities are kind of alarmed that there are Israelites in, in the city. They're like, ah, where is he? And, and she kind of gives them some runaround, and then she helps them escape, and they go back. And part of the, the, the deal is that she says, hey, listen, uh, I know you guys are from God. Make sure when you take the city that you take care of me and my family. In fact, we find out that Rahab, though maybe doesn't measure up to the law of God, she's a lady of faith. Listen to what she says. This is what she says in Joshua 2. She says, she says, we have heard how the Lord, she's talking to the spies, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did in Sh- to Shihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone, everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. She had faith. She believed. And she put her trust in the God of heaven. Well, you know the story, right? So Joshua comes in. God says, okay, uh, I want you to understand that this is victory is of mine, not of yours. So I'm going to have you do something a little unusual. Uh, as they approach, the people of Jericho go inside. They're behind their double walls. Hey, Joshua, you can't get us. They're throwing rocks. I don't know if they did that. But... Um, and, and God says, okay, this is how you're going to do this with your, little, your army. You're going to march once a day around the city for six days. On the seventh day, you're going to march around seven times. And when after the seventh time, when I tell you, I want you to shout. I want you to blow trumpets. I want you to shout for the Lord. And so that's what they do. And, and just before they shout, check out, what, check out what, uh, what, what Joshua has to say. Joshua has to say this. This is kind of like running a, uh, you know those ads where they have the disclaimers? You know, and the guy's like, you know, take this drug and you may die, but it's okay. You know, that kind of thing. So this is what he says. You know, he's just before they say, shout, for the Lord has given your, you the city. The city and all that is in it and to be dov- is, are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in the house. I'm trying to read as fast as I can, so forgive me. Uh, shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on, all, on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and the iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So they says all this, hey, go in. God miraculously pushes the walls down. They enter in. They take the city, and, and, and they're listening to Joshua say, hey, go in, take the city. But when you take the city, no looting. All the loot, all the precious stuff belongs to God. If you take it, you're going to bring trouble on us in the camp. Now, it's interesting. I said I just was at that site, and I'm going to show you a picture up here. What we have here is a picture uh, of a recent archaeological discovery in 1990. At first, when they dug up at at Jericho, they couldn't find these two walls around the time of Joshua, and they said, ah, it's a fable, the Bible's not true, blah, 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 and all that. Well, turns out they didn't dig far enough. Because they digged a little further, and they came up with, found these two double walls, actually the Italians. So we can, we can thank uh, Luigi and Guido and all the boys uh, 
these Italians found these, and these are double walls. The front piece is the one wall, and the back one is the other wall. Remnants of the walls around the time of Joshua. And guess who would live in between those walls? Rahab. Wow. Wow. It's pretty cool standing there and thinking about that. So the walls come down. The city is taken. Glory. Unfortunately, we had a gentleman named Achan who's part of the army, and he goes in, and I'm thinking Achan is thinking in terms of should, right? I deserve something for me and my family. This is not right. I should be able to. I'm thinking he's starting to think, well, God said, but I'm going to take a little bit. He won't notice, particularly if I hide it under my tent. Because I should get something out of this. Why, why, why? I mean, God's got plenty. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I should have a little to me. And so we told Achan, take some of the loot that they're not supposed to take, and he hides it. Now, the discovery of this happens uh, on their next battle. There's this little, there's another town called Ai. Strange name, Ai. That's it, Ai. And... Joshua's like, hey, it's a small town. We've just seen a great victory. We don't have to send the whole army. I'm going to just send a little contingent to go out there and battle AI. So he goes, sends a contingent, and those guys are soundly whipped by the AI people. Boom. Joshua's like, what is going on? Where is God? Discovers, according to the will of God, word of God, hey, one of you have desecrated. There's, there's, there's trouble in the camp. Someone has not done what I said. And so through a process of narrowing down, you know, uh, they get all the tribes together and, and there's a process of narrowing down. It goes from tribe to clan to family to eventually Achan. And Achan is discovered as the individual who took, took the loot for himself, disobeying God's law. And so they execute, they, he is brought under capital punishment, which was the punishment due to those who broke the law. He's executed and the 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 uncleanliness of the camp is cleaned. And then they go on to, to take AI and move on. Now here's the question. Who's the insider? Who's made right with God? Rahab. Achan. At the beginning of the story, you would say, well, Achan is the insider. He's the one that received the law of God from Moses. He's the one that, that is living according to, to the plan that God gives because he's a pe person that belongs to the people of God. Rahab, eh, not so much. She lives on the outside. She's a prostitute, a pagan, and she's a woman. All things that didn't fit what it meant to be holy. But God is teaching us a lesson. Even back there in Joshua. How are we made right with God? Through faith. Rahab believed. And through her faith, she's brought into the family of God. In fact, if you read in Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus, what do you find? You got this listing of this lady who is an ancestor of Jesus. She's the great-grandmother of the King David. King David was the, the ancestor of Jesus. Jesus was all that lineage. In other words... Rahab the prostitute is entered into the ultimate position of insider because she becomes like a great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus himself. Wow. Rahab learned not to have life full of should, but learned to live life full of grace. She lived a graceful life. 
grateful life to honor God. Achan, not so much, right? Achan, living by should, living by what he deserved, going in on his own ways, guess what happened to him? He ended up failing and then ended up getting what he deserved for breaking God's law. Are you with me on this? Do you see the picture there? God's plan A for your salvation is not to should yourself into heaven or be shoulded, but for you to live accepting grace, recognizing the usefulness of God's laws to bring us to the point to recognize and say, God, I can't do it on my own. I can't carry this burden of should by myself and to enter into a new identity and a new way of living. And in the new way of living, becoming transformed, not in should fall, not shaming myself, not beating myself up when I mess up. No, instead, recognizing my motivation needs to be appreciative of what God has done for me so that I might live a grateful life honoring Jesus. Now, I know many of you are like me. We're good people because we're following God. We come to the church. We're trying to do what's right. But we have a bad habit of reverting to should thinking in the way we approach our faith. And I want to encourage you and encourage me to stop it. Because that's not who we are. Stop beating yourself up with should. Stop getting mad because you didn't get what you deserve or should. No, instead, recognize that you've been saved by, from should and living a life of thank you. Every morning, up in the morning, God, thank you for the opportunity I can have to live for you. I offer my life as a gift. And in that offering, I recognize the terms of that offering. What pleases you most is to love God with all my heart and to love people, my neighbor, as myself. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives in me that helps me live that way. That's the life we're called to. That's the life that we see Rahab the prostitute lived by. Let's pray. Thanks so much, Lord, for this time we can be together, and I pray that you would just guide us to help us live grace-filled lives, to stop beating ourselves up with, with thinking of, uh, in, in matters of should and instead thinking ourselves in matters of grace and gratefulness. Help us to live that, to live that as a light into this world with freedom and, and, and joy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together. If you have to uh, like to pray with someone in person, we have guys up front. If you would like to make a decision to become a Jesus follower, please uh, let us know that as well. We will be here ready to, to baptize you as you te testify in your faith. Let's sing together. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.